All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn, if you'd like, into Genesis 12. Um, we're not going to be in Genesis for the whole time we're together today. Um, so you also, if you, if you don't want to be turning midway through and you'd like to follow along, then I would welcome you to um, turn to Romans chapter 6, in fact. Um, last time we were together, we uh, spent our time formalizing the definition of faith through the example of Abram in the early verses of Hebrews 11. Uh, We'll continue that theme next week. We'll continue thinking about faith as Abraham uh, sojourns, continues to sojourn south um, uh, toward Egypt. But this week, I'd like to take a little bit of an aside to think about Egypt itself. Throughout Genesis chapters 1 through 11, what I have been encouraging you to do as you've read through those chapters is to think about the events that we have been presented with through the perspective of, uh, if you will, one who did not have the whole of biblical knowledge. So what I've encouraged you to do is say, if you were reading the Bible for the first time, and this was the first introduction to God, then what is God trying to introduce about himself, right? So then when we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and, and we see in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and we see those things. What is, what is the Bible telling us when God created the heaven and the earth? And we, went to, we talked about time, space, and matter, and we went through those things, thinking, through what is it that the Bible is actually attempting to introduce to us about God. Now, we know as we compare Scripture with Scripture that we can go to any number of other Scriptures to draw those things, but that doesn't mean we don't see them in Genesis. They are, in fact, there as we look into those things. It allows us to think through exactly what it was that the writer was attempting to express and introduce to the readership. And this is valuable anytime you are interpreting the Word of God because the first objective of interpretation as it relates to the Word of God is not to discern what the text means to me, the reader. Our first objective in interpreting the Bible is understanding what the author meant to convey. That is my job. I'm seeking to draw out what the author was seeking to convey when he was writing it, not... What I draw from it, that's what what we call application to the text. Now, all of this being said, this does not mean that we discount other scriptures in the process of interpretation. We recognize that the Bible is a singular volume. Yes, it's made up of 66 books. Yes, it was written over thousands of years. But it is a singular volume that was authored by, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And because the book was authored in total by the Holy Spirit of God, it is a singular and a cohesive narrative that supports itself, that comments upon itself, that explains itself, and that reveals itself. We'll often say that the Bible is the best commentary on itself, and this is indeed the case. And as we get deeper into the narrative of Abram and his descendants, particularly as we walk uh, through uh, Abraham's life, we are going to need more and more of that New Testament insight to fully glean what is being said there because it is within those pages uh, of, of the New Testament that many of the things that God was doing, especially in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are, are revealed in a more full way. Uh, and today we're going to kind of do a little bit of both in the sense that um, as we think through the idea of Egypt, we understand what Egypt is in, in its narrative way, but I'd like to give you a perspective on what Egypt comes to represent within the, the, the scope of Scripture, particularly 
uh, within the Old Testament scriptures. Recall last time we were together in our text, we left Abram looking to settle in the land that God had promised to him and to his posterity. So we read in verses 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 12, And he, that would be Abram, removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. So Abram attempted to settle. And we we recognize, I didn't read it here, but he first tried to settle in Sychem or Shechem. And that did not work. So then he goes to this mountain that was between Bethel and Hai, and he did not settle there either. And so he is continuing to move south through the land of Canaan. And then we pick up there in verse 10, where we read this. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. So Abram was told to leave his family in Haran and to go into the land of Canaan. And God said, there in the land of Canaan, I would bless you. And there in the land of Canaan, you would become a blessing so that all the families of the earth would in you be blessed. And Abram enters into that land and he immediately faces obstacles in the land. The first thing that we find is he's struggling to find a place to settle. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we don't know exactly why that is. Perhaps it was because of this famine that was in the land that he was going and looking for a place that was fruitful enough to be able to sustain him and his household within this time of famine. Uh, Perhaps it was, as we will see more clearly in Isaac's day, as Isaac's servants are digging a well here and digging a well there. And every time they dig a well, uh, one of the occupants of the land comes up and fills in the well and says, nope, this is our land, no well here for you, until he finally finds a place where he can dig a well and settle into the land. Uh, If it's the inhabitants of the land, perhaps that's his as well. But either way, though God told him this land would be his, what Abram is immediately confronted with when he gets into the land is problems along the journey. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about that next week as we kind of reorient our focus again on what the, the, the Genesis narrative teaches us about faith. But what we find this week is that in that time of difficulty for one reason or another, for whatever reason he, uh, uh, this, this happened, Abram, as he continues to move south, uh, ends up going down into Egypt and sojourning there. Now, he is also sojourning in the land of Canaan. He, uh, God has promised the land of Canaan to him. But he was a stranger there as well. Hebrews 11 makes that very clear. Um, As a matter of fact, Genesis 15 will make that very clear as well, that Abram will continue to be a stranger in the land, as will his son and his son's son, until that next generation, some 450 years later, when they will enter into the land and they will conquer it. That would be in the days of what we call the Exodus. But it is the idea of Abram going and sojourning in the land of Egypt that I would like for us to spend our time thinking about this morning laying the foundation for future study in scriptures. This is the first mention here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, of the land of Egypt. Uh, Those of you who know your Bibles well know that this will certainly not be the last mention. And Egypt has been a historical location in North Africa, supplied by the uh, Nile River and and, uh, rooted in that Nile Delta region. We will, however, find as we continue through the books of the Bible that Egypt, beyond just being a location of much culture and of knowledge in the world, Egypt will also become a representation 
that Egypt is not just a country, it is not just a location, Egypt is actually a metaphorical representation in the Bible of the world. And this will not become uh, completely clear in, in a uh, chronological study or in a progressive study of the Word of God until we get to the Exodus. And when we get to the Exodus, we'll see this in clarity, and I'll, I'll show you that this morning. Um, but even now, we, we see the idea of Abram sojourning into Egypt, and this should perk our interest. And the reason why it should perk our interest so much is specifically because Abram was promised that land of Canaan. Abram was promised to be sustained in that land of Canaan. Now, think through this with me. And again, we'll talk more about this next week. If God makes you a promise and says, go down to this land and live there and I'll make of you a great nation and I'll give you seed and, 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 and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And you get down there and times are tough. Is it your first inclination to say, well, I guess I'm not supposed to be in this land? Well, no, it's not. Because God said, live in this land. I know I'm not going to die in this land if God told me to come to this land to be blessed. And yet, Abram still ends up going past that land and down into Egypt. And then we see, of course, uh, him come back out and Isaac and Jacob, they live in their days and then they all end up down in Egypt for a time before the Lord brings them out. And when the nation of Israel is brought out of Egypt and journeying to the promised land, subsequently wandering in the wilderness... When we see in those days an appeal to return to Egypt, when the multitude is calling out to Moses saying, let us return to Egypt. Again, we'll look at that in just a moment. What we are reading there is not simply a historical appeal for them to go back to the land that they had lived before, although we are reading that. It's a historical narrative. But we are also seeing a metaphorical lusting of the people for the things of the world in contrast to the promises of God. For the things of this life in contrast to the life that is to come. And there is perhaps no better expression of this than in Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, the Bible says this. The mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. This is a historical narrative of a people who were thinking back to uh, another time and desiring something other than what they had. But it's also a metaphorical picture of a people that are thinking back on another time or another place and they are falling into a spiritual lusting. As the mixed multitude came out of Egypt, they fell into a spiritual condition of lusting for that which God had not given to them. And notice what happened here. They said, if only we could go back to Egypt where we had the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onion and the garlic... And all we have now is this manna before our eyes and our soul is dried away. Now, this is quite a perspective for those of you that understand the historical narrative, isn't it? Notice what has happened here. Having been redeemed out of slavery, if, if, if you recall, um, Egypt was not a vacation home for Israel. 
Egypt was not a resort for Israel. If you recall where, where, where Israel was in their, the latter days of their sojourning in Egypt, they were not in good condition. They were redeemed out of slavery. They were brought through the Red Sea. They were in the wilderness. And they became discouraged along the way, however. Their memory of their time in Egypt became, if you will, muddied. They remembered the food, which they ate. The the Nile River Delta area, probably plenty of the things that they mentioned there. But they forgot that they were slaves. They forgot that their sons were murdered in order to keep their numbers low. They forgot that the Egyptians worked them hard and beat them and demeaned them and treated them as if they were subhuman. They were slaves. They forgot their sorrow and their misery that called them to cry out to their Lord for redemption time and time again. And they forgot that because in their lust and their selfishness, they only remembered and then they elevated those things to a level far above what they ought to have been. They only remembered those temporal, fleeting moments of pleasure in a context of otherwise tremendous sorrow and waywardness. But perhaps even more stunning than their very confused revisionist history of what Egypt was like is how they perceived where they were now, how they perceived God's provision in that day. They said, notice what they say here in verse 6 about the way that they were living in that day. But now our soul is dried away and there is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Nothing but this manna. Now, once again, I'm relying upon your biblical knowledge a little bit this morning. But do you recall how manna happened and what manna is and and, and where it came from and, and what it meant to the nation of Israel? Psalm 78, verses 18 through 25, we read this. Speaking of the nation of Israel, summarizing their time in the wilderness, the Bible says, and they, that would be Israel, tempted God in their heart by asking for meat in their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock and that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Uh, God gave us water out of a rock, but he can't give us more food. Tempting the Lord. Can he provide flesh for his people? Verse 21. Therefore, the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger came against Israel because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation, though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. They are saying, oh, we had it so good in Egypt when we could eat of the fish and the garlic and the cucumbers and the melons. And now all we have is this food that literally appears at our doorstep in the morning. We don't have to pick it. We don't have to grow it. It it is there for us every day. We don't have to worry about whether it's going to be there or not. We are literally uh, living out of the fullness of God's generosity for us. And our soul is dried away and we have nothing but this light bread. What a perspective. 
Psalm 78 calls it corn of heaven. Angels' food. It was nourishing. It was sweet. It was flavorful. Given to them without effort to plant or to water or to harvest. Without any anxiety as to whether or not there would be something to eat the next day. And they say, our soul is dried away. When the perspective of the children of Israel turned inward and they began to lust, that lust warped their perspective to the point where they saw the bondage that was in Egypt as freedom and they saw the freedom that God has given to them as a form of limitation or as a form of bondage. And this is actually what the essence of Egypt is meant to teach us and represent in the scriptures. That as we consider the idea of Egypt from chapter to chapter and from, from, from book to book in the Bible, when you think of Egypt, you, yes, maybe we're just talking about a historical narrative and Egypt is sending armies up and those sorts of things. But when you think through what God states about Egypt, when you think through how the, the, the scriptures use Egypt, thematically what you're looking at is a representation of the world. That when they lust for Egypt, they're lusting for those temporal pleasures of the world in contrast to the promises of God. That when God commands the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy to not cause their people to return to Egypt and to not bring horses out of Egypt, yes, there is a practical idea there as it relates to geopolitics and the like, but the deeper essence of that is that Egypt was that place from which you will never return because it's the place place out of which you have been redeemed and there is a metaphorical reality that spans time and generation as it relates to the relationship between God and his people whereby once you have been redeemed from a place even if your heart seeks to call you back in a moment of confusion to those things of which you once had by which now you are ashamed you do not return to those things because those things are empty your heart will lie and deceive you and tell you that you miss those things, but you don't actually miss those things because if you think through it, you know what came with those things. The sorrow, the shame, the loss, the confusion, all of the things that you have been redeemed out of, it's part of that package. And this is what lust does to us, Christian. It causes us to look out at the world out of which we have been redeemed and to see that pleasure of sin for a season and make no Mistake, there is pleasure in sin for a season. But our lust convinces us that theirs is the freedom and ours is the bondage. That because we walk by faith and we live of the good pleasure of God, our flesh seeks to convince us that that means that we are missing out. That when you stepped into a relationship with the true and living God, your heart will deceive you into thinking at certain points in your life that somehow you're missing out on something. But that is a warped perspective, isn't it? That those weak and beggarly things that the world finds pleasurable, our heart can, can, can try to convince us that those things were actually better. Our heart will think back to the time where we had the fish and the melons and the cucumbers and the leeks. And it won't also bring up the fact that our sons were killed and we were in bondage and we were whipped and we had no, no freedom in that place. Our heart will try to convince us that in walking by faith, I am somehow being deprived of something that Egypt had in its fullness, if only I could get back there. And we can sit under the teaching of the Word of God 
And we can read Numbers chapter 11 and we can read Psalm 78 and we can roll our eyes and we can scoff that Israel would be so foolish as to forget what God had done for them. I mean, how can you complain when you walked through the Red Sea? How can you forget something like that? Psalm 78 even says, while they were complaining about not having meat, they actually used the reality of God bringing water from the rock as kind of a manipulation tactic against God. God, you can give us water from a rock. Can you not give us flesh to eat as well? Using that kind of a stirring miracle as a means by which to cudgel or manipulate God into giving me what I want. And yet, as we read those things and we might scoff and say, how could they possibly have been that foolish, that hard-hearted, that blind? The real question is, how often do we do the same? And we'll talk a bit more, more about that in a little bit. Coming back to the text then. Abram sets his journey into Egypt. And we actually see here an outworking of him leaning on his own understanding. We'll really talk about that next week. Seeking an earth-bound solution to this problem of famine. There's a famine in the land. Obviously, I can't live in a famine. So I'm going to go find myself a place where there is no famine, forgetting that God did not command him to go into Canaan by faith simply so that he could die there. Right? Egypt asked the same, or Israel asked the same thing in the wilderness. Did God bring us out to the wilderness so that we could die there? What a silly question. Would God have parted the Red Sea and led you by a pillar of cloud and a fire simply to kill you in the wilderness? Well, of course not. It makes no sense. That's not how a faithful God operates. Much to the contrary. God's promised, he promised Abraham that his seed would be blessed, would bless the world. How then could Abram die in Canaan before he was given a seed, before he was given a child? How could he die in Canaan before he saw the establishment of those, those promises of God? But Abram, he faltered in faith here. And instead, he says, I'm going to journey down to Egypt. And what we will find next time we are together is that though God yet would be faithful to Abram, even in his wanderings in Egypt, yet this faltering of faith would come with a measure of consequences. And we'll contemplate those consequences next time. But for today, I would like us to spend the rest of our time uh, sitting in this metaphor of Egypt. This is the first time we see this introduction in the Word of God. Now, if we were just reading through the Word of God, Genesis 12, at this point, the idea of Egypt would be unremarkable, as I say, until the point where we start to see the trend, the trend of going down to Egypt in contradiction to trusting the Lord and His promises, the trend of being Joseph being sent to Egypt, and then uh, amazingly enough, God using Egypt to sustain Israel for the time, but only to unto this end, that he might bring the nation out of Egypt and so establish Egypt as that metaphor of the world that was past and of that thing out of which Israel would need to be redeemed. But the question I'm compelled to ask you this morning is whether or not since following the Lord into his promise of the gospel, for you who have followed the Lord into the promise of the gospel, for you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and stepped into this life of faith. My question to you that I encourage you to ask yourself is whether or not you have been drawn back into a longing for Egypt. Into a longing for the 
the pleasures of sin for a season, for the unbelieving world out of which you have been delivered. And we find this warning all throughout the New Testament. I was really tempted to go to several different places today. Hebrews 3 and 1 Corinthians 10 even use uh, examples of the Exodus as a means by which to invoke this idea of, of not lusting for those things, of not hardening ourselves, being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as uh, Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. Ephesians and Colossians speak to this as it relates to the kind of the, the warnings against legalism. We also see it in Galatians. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the, the sermon, the place where I would like you to go this morning to think through this idea is Romans 6. Now, many of you are familiar with that chapter of Scripture, Romans chapter 6. It begins in verses 1 through 4 with an appeal not to allow our understanding of grace to cause us to feel as though we have the right before God to continue living in sin. And this is a little bit of a different issue than necessarily just lusting for those things. This is the person that says, oh, well, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law. I'm not under this legal standard. Jesus Christ has already paid for all of my sin, past, present, and future. So I guess I can continue in sin and just allow grace to abound in my life as I continue in sin. And to that, of course, many of you are familiar. Paul says this in verses one through four. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as are baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life. That we ought to walk in the newness of life out of which or into which we have been born. The essence of Paul's appeal in these verses is not so much that those who have gone lusting after the sins from which they have been redeemed um, would not lust after them but rather again as I mentioned that we would not misunderstand grace and so think that we can simply live in sin because we are under grace. But as Paul continues his argument in Romans chapter 6, this is what I would like to kind of draw out this morning. As he's continuing his argument about why we as believers ought not to sin, it leads to an exhortation regarding the very foundation of perspective on sin itself. And that's what I'd like us to think through. A foundational perspective on sin itself. So I jump to verse 12, and the Bible says this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness 
and to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Follow Paul's argument with me here. The reason why we cannot abide the idea of continuing in sin because we are under grace is because by allowing sin to reign in our mortal bodies, our mortal bodies become instruments of unrighteousness. This is not God's design for his children. Much to the contrary, God's design is that we are dead to sin, alive unto God, and so our members would be yielded as particular instruments of righteousness, something that we cannot do when we are in our flesh, for we are bound by, uh, by our flesh. We are bound by sin. We are in the chains of sin. But once we have been redeemed, once we have been brought out from that sin, we are able to be an instrument of righteousness through the Spirit of God who indwells us the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. So as a believer, it is perfectly within our capability to still allow our members to serve unrighteousness. If it wasn't within our capability to still serve unrighteousness, then Paul would not have to spend copious amounts of the New Testament telling us not to. A lot of the New Testament would make no sense if the minute that you were saved, you were simply going to serve righteousness for the rest of your life. It is your choice to do so. You simply have a new option on the table that you didn't have before, and that is that you can now walk in the Spirit and yield your members as servants of righteousness. So that Paul says in verse 17, God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. But it's actually verses 20 and 21 where we find the most relevance to our exhortation this morning. Perhaps as you sit here this morning, you find yourself longing for, or maybe you find yourself living in the pleasures of sin. The pleasures of the flesh. Described by Paul in Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 as adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Described by Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, as unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispering, backbiting, hating God, despiteful, proud, boasters, an inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Or perhaps Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10. Fornicator, idolater, adulterer, effeminate, abuser of oneself with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. And maybe you find yourself in a place where you are doing some of those things. Some of those things are somewhat beyond the pale societally. Others are pretty societally acceptable. All of them, the Bible says, are works of unrighteousness. 
And it's interesting because I gave you that last list in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. And at the end of that list, Paul says this. And such were some of you. But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were those things. But you're not anymore. You were those things when you lived in them. You were those things before your redemption. You were defined by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. Now you're justified. Look, you did live in Egypt, but now you've passed through the Red Sea. You did live in Egypt, but now you live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You did have fish and leeks, but now you get angels' food. And it's different. It's different in kind. But it takes a very confused perspective. It takes a carnal perspective to see what God has done in your life and to say, that's bondage. It takes a carnal perspective to be confused enough to look back on life as it was when, yes, you did things then that you don't do now. You thought things then that you don't think now. To look back on them and say, man, I wish I could have had those things. And you know what? In the, in the moments of pleasure, that makes sense from a fleshly perspective. But what did those things bring to your life? See, unbeliever, the, the, the unbelieving life, those decisions of the flesh, it, it comes with something. Right? You, you, you reap what you sow. When you plant into, when you sow the flesh, you of the flesh reap corruption. You can't have those things. You can't have fornication. You can't have adultery. You can't have wrath. You can't have backbiting. You can't have rebellion without the fruit of those things in your life. You can't have the action... And that cotton candy pleasure of whatever that action might be without the thing that it bears in your life, which is, according to Romans chapter 6, death. And so what Israel should have done in their day is said, yeah, that fish tasted good, but God has provided something for us. It is everything that we need. Oh, and by the way, that fish came with being beaten. That fish came with my eldest, my, 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 my boys being murdered when they were born. That fish came with me being treated less than human. And I have been redeemed from all of that. And God has given me everything that I need today in the manna that's at my feet every morning when I, when I open my tent. In the, the water that is flowing from the rock that follows me through the wilderness. And so Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. When you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. You were free. You were free from something. When you were an unbeliever, you were free from something, and that something was righteousness. But then Paul asks a very, very important question that we all need to think about every day. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? And he tells you the fruit. The end of those things is death. We'll come back to that in a moment. When you lived in pride, when you lived in selfishness, when you lived in lust, when you lived in wrath, when you lived in, in violence, when you lived in adultery, when you lived in fornication, when you lived in backbiting, when you lived in the lies, when you lived in, in, in the rebellion, in the disobedience, what fruit did you have in it? Did it really satisfy? Did it free your soul? 
When you lived in that fornication and lust, what fruit did you have in it? Sure, temporary and fleeting pleasure, but at what cost? Was it worth it? Is it worth it? And when you are redeemed from the death that is in the world, the separation from your Father in heaven, from His Spirit, that is death, you were then placed into a context of boundaries that we know as the character of God. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, God has placed His children within a set of boundaries. Those boundaries are defined by His character, by His word, enforced by His Spirit. And like children, we can work with, within ourselves a, a foolish frustration where we see the boundaries of God's character and God's word that have been put around us and we can say God is, has us in bondage. We can, in childlike frustration, convince ourselves that to follow Christ is to lose out on something that the rest of the world gets to do. But when you look at it this way, do you see what you're doing, Christian? You're looking at the manna which appears on the ground in front of you every morning, perfectly submission, sufficient for your nourishing and your wellness, and your lusts have twisted you to think that the leeks and the onions of spiritual bondage are actually of more value than the angels' food of spiritual liberty. You are looking at the very things which God has given to you to supply every natural human need within the bounds of his love and within the bounds of his virtue. And your heart has tricked you into thinking that God has withheld something from you. But Christian, let me remind you that you serve a loving father. That the boundaries of God's character are not boundaries of bondage. They are the boundaries of liberty. You say boundaries of liberty... But yeah, you know, we have a very interesting idea of liberty today in the United States. Our idea of liberty has been entirely warped from what liberty actually is. Liberty outside of accountability and responsibility is anarchy. It is not liberty. Liberty cannot function outside of responsibility and accountability. I've preached that a couple of Fourth of Julys. Um, you can go back and listen to those if you are interested. I have an orange line that extends across my driveway. And that orange line, it's a little faded now, I need to refresh it this year after the snow. But that orange line, about 10 feet up my driveway, is a boundary line. That boundary line exists so that when my children go out and play, as they're playing on the driveway, and they see that orange line, they are told explicitly they may not cross that orange line. Now, I put the orange line up because we have a pretty busy road in front of our house. I don't want my children getting within a foot or two feet of that road. I don't want them going to the end of the driveway because the end of the driveway uh, is a dangerous place. And so I set that line about 10 feet back from the driveway for two reasons. First, to keep my children safe. And second, so that if they do get a little rebellious and decide to cross that line, that rebellion will not end in tragedy. That's why we set boundaries back a little bit from the edge sometimes in our lives. Now, my children can look at that line in a couple of different ways. They could look at that line as bondage. 
that their father has in anger or in selfishness or in uh, uh, some uh, unreasonableness of self-superiority withheld from them the freedom of those 10 feet of driveway. Put them in bondage, laid unreasonable expectations upon them and is unjust and unkind. My father has put this line here and that line is unreasonable. And, I, and if they made that argument to me, my, my answer would be this. Okay, I'll take the line up and you'll stay inside. The line is not there to hinder my children's ability to enjoy the outdoors. It's there to give them freedom to enjoy the outdoors within the boundaries that I've set for their best good. That line is a line of freedom because it gives me the comfort to be able to let them go outside and play knowing that there's a boundary in place that will keep them safe so that I don't have to be out there babysitting them every single time they want to go play out in the front yard. I could take up the line, but then they'd only be able to go out there when mom or dad have enough time to sit out there and watch them. Or I can put the line there. They can obey their father and they will have freedom to play in the front yard. That boundary exists not for their suffering, not for their punishment, not because I'm trying to withhold something from them except for that which they don't need anyway and that is not for their best good. It is for their wellness. It is for their protection. And they're absolutely free to operate within that boundary. And here's the wonderful thing, that as long as they stay within that boundary, there's never going to be a day where they come in from the house and daddy is going to rebuke them for where they were in the yard. Because they know their boundaries. They know the bound, the, whether they know why the boundaries there or not, they know their boundaries. And that boundary gives them the freedom to say, as long as I'm on this side of the line, my father is well pleased with me. And that's freedom too, is it not? Is it not freedom for me to know my father's expectations so that I know what pleases him and I know what does not? So that I don't have to wonder if I'm going to walk into the house one day and my dad is just going to go off on me because he changed the boundary today. Yesterday it was this boundary. Today it's that boundary. No, there's a line. And I'm on this side of the line, which means my father is pleased. That's a good thing. That's freedom. That frees my conscience to serve my father and to be able to enjoy everything that is within those boundaries in a manner that they can be entirely confident will both please their father and be to their best good, will not be to their harm or their sorrow. And the same is true of God's boundaries, Christian. They are not bondage. They are not bondage. They are freedom. Within the bounds of God's character, his word, his will, I am absolutely free. I can operate not only with the knowledge that as long as I am within those boundaries, I am in fellowship with God, but I can also operate with the confidence that I am within the bounds of his design of human good, of human flourishing, 
so that the fruit of my actions will not need to be the fruit of shame or of guilt or of fear, but it can be the fruit of contentment and pleasure and joy because I am within the boundaries that God set. And let me tell you, that may mean that there's certain things in this world that I will not do because they are outside of those boundaries. But if God has said, don't do them, then this one thing I know, I don't need it. God has given me everything that I need for maximum human flourishing within his design, within the boundaries of his will, within the boundaries of his character, so that if it is right and it is good and it is within those boundaries, then I can do it. And as I do it, I can do it without having to wonder whether or not it's right or wrong because it's in the boundaries. So that the fruit of my actions will never be the fruit of shame but of joy, pleasure, and contentment. And perhaps today you've lost sight of that. And today you, like Israel, have longed for Egypt. Or like Abram before them. You're in a place of promise where God has given you his boundaries. He's asking you to walk according to his way, but you faltered in your faith. And you said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not understanding what God is doing here in Canaan. Yeah, this is the place where I believe God has led me, but this has been a, a tough road. There's, there's a famine in the land. I can't find a place to settle, and I'm confused, and I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And you say, well, maybe I'll just go to Egypt. Maybe I'll just wander down there and see what Egypt has for me. And if you're a believer, there's only one reason why it is that you've turned back to the things of the world after having been redeemed by the world, uh, from the world. And that's because you've lost perspective. You've stopped looking at this world through the eyes of faith and have been instead looking through perspective of the flesh, of carnality, as the Bible would call it. You've forgotten that, out, uh, that place out of which you have been redeemed and you've remembered only the temporal or the fleeting pleasure or ease or the, the, the things that the, the safety nets, whatever it might be that, that world, the world has to offer you. And while those temporal and fleeting pleasures were, to an extent, very real and valid pleasures, I'm not here to tell you that there's no pleasure to be had in the things that the world has to offer. That would be incorrect and, 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 and absurd. They're, they're allure- if they weren't alluring, then we wouldn't have to be here every week. Right? Once again, a lot of this book wouldn't be, need to be written if the world, the flesh, and the devil were not interesting, alluring, and have something, at least in the temporal, to offer us. But then we ask this question. When you've lived in that place, what fruit had you in those things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death, Christian. And today, may each of us remember that from which we have been redeemed. Now, our young people, maybe second, third generation Christians, might lack a little bit of that perspective. That's pretty common. You don't know all of what you have been redeemed out of. Because you came to Christ at a young age, your parents have protected you, and thank God for that. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing that you don't really know. But you don't have to look far to see the wages of sin in our society. 
You don't have to look far to see. Now, you turn the television on and you look at commercials, the wages of sin are going to look pretty good. You look at billboards, the wages of sin are going to look pretty good. You read the prophets of this world and you're going to find that the prophets of this world do a good job of advocating for this world and they have help in your heart because you have this thing in you called the flesh that is going to gravitate toward those arguments. But it doesn't take much digging to see the fruit of this world. It doesn't take much digging to see how the philosophy that the world is, is, is dedicated to brings death. Not just spiritual death, but quite often physical death as well. And today may each of us remember that from which we have been redeemed. And that is the final warning of Romans chapter 6. I stopped reading in verse 21 here, but there are two more verses in Romans chapter 6, and those verses are these. But now being made free from sin, ye became servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, these verses can be a little bit confusing in context because in context, this is being written to believers, right? Our chapter began here with, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're talking to believers here. Paul is not writing to unbelievers when he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life, everlasting life, everlasting life is not just about going to heaven, Christian, It is about the fruit of our life of holiness. It's about how we live, not just where we go. Every day, the the way that you are living your life, the manner in which you are submitting yourself, either the flesh or the spirit, is bearing something in you. It's either bearing life or it's bearing death. Death, going all the way back to Genesis, the early Genesis, we talked about it when we talked about Adam and Eve. Did they die when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Absolutely they died. And that death is not just they began to die. They did begin to die on that day. But on that day, the theme of death began in the scriptures. And the theme of death centralizes. Physical death is actually only a metaphor for the theme of death in the Bible. The theme of death in the Bible is this, separation from God. That's death. Now, when, I, it, when, when, when my, my spirit leaves my body... If I've accepted Christ as my Savior, I go to be with the Lord into eternal life. It's life because I'm with God. Or it's eternal death. It's death because I'm separated from God. However, when Paul warns that the wages of sin is death, he is warning about the manner in which I'm living this life in the flesh. We talked about that a lot in 1 John, didn't we? That I can be, I can live in a manner that is in fundamental separation from my God as I'm living, not abiding in Christ, alienated from a relationship, from, from my relationship with God through grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, living in death. And when I live in death, I live in that place of darkness and I cannot see where I'm going. I can't orient myself rightly to the world that is around me. The wages of sin are always death. Yes, this is a good verse to use when we're evangelizing the lost. It's a good verse to remind them that when I sin, sin brings 
death. Death brings separation. Eternal separation is in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. But Paul is using this to warn believers that sin, that Egypt, that lusting for and longing for those things of which you are now ashamed will break your fellowship with your Father, will strip you of the fruit of holiness and a life lived in the context of everlasting life. And instead it will hold you hostage to the bondage of your own flesh. The world sees the way we live and says, wow, they are really strict. They are really tight. They have really bound themselves. Okay? Except that they have no capacity to serve righteousness. Who is really free? Who is really being held hostage? It's not me. I can go and live that way. I choose not to. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But only through Christ can anyone serve righteousness. And if you've been stuck in that place this morning, you're longing for Egypt, perhaps you've wandered into Egypt, would you today remember your redemption and come back to that freedom that is in Christ? Confessing that sin to God, forsaking it with all clarity and following Christ into the fruit of holiness. You have been called out of Egypt. Don't fall for the trap of longing for its temporal pleasures while forgetting its bondage. It's easy to do, but don't do it. Maintain that right perspective. Don't allow the daily manna of God's goodness to become distasteful because your heart has told you that that, the, the provisions of Egypt were superior. Don't follow a famine of the circumstances in which you find yourself where you're confused and God seems to have led but you don't exactly know where and, and you, you, you don't understand what he's doing. You feel like you've led him to, you, you followed him to this point but now it's like heaven is, is brass and your, your prayers are bouncing off uh, the, the ceiling and, 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 and you're not seeing what God has for you and you're confused and, and you're alienated and you're tired. Don't allow that famine in your life to draw you into Egypt. And so forsake the promised provision of God in the place in which he has called you. Embrace the boundaries of God's righteousness. Embrace the boundaries of God's promises in which everything that we need for life and godliness, for joy, for peace, for contentment, for pleasure, for amusement, for life is there and not just there, but it's there more abundantly. Is that not what our Savior said? I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And may each of us live in that abundant life this morning. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.